Welcome to the Colby Daniels Podcast. We have a ton to talk about on this Monday following a wild, wild college football and NFL weekend for that matter. It's one of those things I don't even know where to begin when you start talking about Oklahoma, Texas, the Red River rivalry, the 2020 edition. It certainly lived up to the expectation of being completely bananas. Before we start breaking this thing down and talking about the expectations and what we saw and what it all means going forward, I do want to thank you guys for checking out the pregame show on Saturday morning. Every Saturday before Oklahoma's kickoff, Mike Steely and I have pregame coverage. I tweet the link. You can follow it on Periscope. And we had a ton of viewers on Saturday. And once again, I just want to say a big thank you to everybody that checked out the pregame show and joined in the conversation. If you haven't done so already, do me a favor. Please subscribe to the podcast. Rate the podcast, review the podcast, and share the podcast with your friends. That's a tremendous help to me. And if you want to contact me, feel free to do so at Colby underscore Daniels on Twitter. Or you can hit me up on Instagram, Colby.Daniels. Either way, let me know what you think of the podcast. If you have ideas of things you would like me to talk about, you're certainly welcome to extend those to me as well. So I love the interaction. I look forward to hearing from you guys. Again, Colby underscore Daniels Twitter, Colby.Daniels on Instagram. All right, let's talk about this OU Texas debacle that we saw on Saturday. And look, let's start with the expectations because I think this was an interesting game from that standpoint. Going into this, and I said this on the pregame Saturday, I'm trying to figure out a winner here and I'm trying to figure out who to pick in the football game. And to me, it wasn't a situation where I looked at these two teams and said I felt like one team was going to win it over the other or this was a situation where one team was playing significantly better than the other. We all watched these two teams play football for three weeks, and I think the overwhelming majority of people felt like both teams were playing pretty bad football entering this game. Both teams probably should have been one and two entering this football game. If if the Texas Tech Red Raiders don't turn into the Atlanta Falcons, then both of these teams are one and two at kickoff on Saturday morning. But again, what we had seen to that point was inconsistent offense, bad, bad defense from both teams, special teams mistakes, and a situation where both teams had just hurt themselves over and over and over. Going into the matchup against Big 12 competition, Oklahoma had five turnovers, Texas had four turnovers, Oklahoma had 19 penalties, Texas had 22 penalties. We saw both of those things in play on Saturday. But at the end of the day, when the dust settled, I think the one thing that I expected to see in this matchup was Texas' ability to run the football better than Oklahoma. Texas had run the football better than Oklahoma in their previous two matchups. The Sooners had struggled to establish the run game. And then pretty much everywhere else, I felt like it was a pretty even matchup. So out of the gate, I think you have to give Oklahoma a ton of credit for not only their ability to establish the run game, and win the rushing battle, 208 yards to 141. They were the more physical offensive line, but they were also the more physical defensive line. They prevented Texas from ever being able to run the football consistently. And I thought for 90% of the game, they dominated. Not just one, they dominated the line of scrimmage. And that's really where it starts as far as the defensive improvement that we saw on Saturday. I thought the defense played a hell of a football game. They got a turnover on Texas' first possession, which had to take a ton of pressure off their shoulders out of the gate. And maybe they were able to play free and clear a little bit from the start because they were they got that turnover 
as soon as the game started. They follow that up with a three and out. And if you're an Oklahoma fan, you had to be thrilled with the way the defense started this game. The Oklahoma offense then decides to turn the ball over three times, three consecutive possessions, which put the defense in some really bad spots. And to be honest with you, that's where I think this Oklahoma defense deserves the most praise for what we saw on Saturday. They've shown the ability to play well in stretches. The problem is it kind of seems like once a team hits on a big play or two or gets some points on the board or kind of figures out how to attack this defense, the confidence is gone and it just kind of feels like they become a punching bag. And that wasn't the case on Saturday, despite the offense giving the ball away, putting the defense in some pretty adverse situations and Texas getting points out of those situations, the Oklahoma defense bounced back and continued to play tough, continued to bring the fight to the Texas offense and continued to win the line of scrimmage. The Spencer Rattler turnover situation was really interesting and I've said this for three weeks. Spencer Rattler is at the very bottom of my concern list. He's going to make freshman mistakes. He's going to have turnovers along the way and I think when you look at his upside and what he's capable of, you're just going to have to live through some of that. I love John Hoover's stat when it comes to this OU-Texas matchup from a quarterback perspective. Since 1990, a first-time Red River rivalry starting quarterback versus an experienced Red River rivalry quarterback, which is the case here with Spencer Rattler and Sam Ellinger, the new guy is 3-14-1 going into this matchup since 1990. It kind of felt like Spencer Rattler definitely had nerves early. He wasn't comfortable early. And this was kind of a no-lose situation for Lincoln Riley to take him out of the game. One of two things happens. Either Tanner Mordecai gets his opportunity and makes the most of it, and the offense all of a sudden starts moving the football, or it allows Spencer Rattler the opportunity to calm down, get his wits back, and have another shot. And and that's ultimately the way that it went. But again, I I think you have to praise the Oklahoma defense for how good they were on the line of scrimmage. If you had told me they were going to be pressuring Sam Ellinger the entire game, I would have thought you were crazy entering this ball game. So again, they were they were terrific. Perion Winfrey played well. I thought Isaiah Thomas was probably the best defensive player in the game for Oklahoma. You saw Oklahoma finally decide to give some young secondary players their their opportunities. I think 11 defensive backs overall played in this football game. That's a good sign. There's been a lot of hesitancy from this Oklahoma team the last two seasons to give anybody else an opportunity on the back end of that defense, and they finally did it. And look, I thought Woody Washington was terrific. So Rattler re-enters the ball game, plays really well. I really like that they they established Theo Weiss in this game. Theo Weiss was a guy a year ago, I think it was the South Dakota game. He catches that pass and, and essentially carries the entire defense into the end zone. He's a guy that I've identified as a potential big-time playmaker for this team. And I know it's been a slow start, but I was glad to see them take advantage of his matchup, give him the opportunity, and see him make the most of that opportunity. I felt like Austin Stogner probably needed to be featured within the offense more this week, and that really wasn't the case, but he did make some big plays. And with all that said, the thing that is most baffling to me, I think we have to just fast forward to the fourth quarter, seven minutes left in the ballgame, and how everything just kind of went haywire from there. So Texas enters this matchup as the number one scoring offense in the country, averaging 51 points a game and 517 yards per game. And when you consider the fact that everybody seems to have success against this Oklahoma defense, my expectation was that Texas wouldn't have a problem moving the football in this matchup. And with seven minutes left in the game, the Longhorns had 17 points, mostly set up by Oklahoma turnovers early in the game, and they had 162 total yards of offense. Once again, the defense was incredible for the majority of this game. 
And then we saw Oklahoma take their foot off the gas. And I, I can't understand how this happens so many times, especially considering what we've just watched the last two weeks and what we just saw against a Kansas State team where Oklahoma was clearly dominating the football game and the better team. And for whatever reason, they weren't able to finish. And with seven minutes left in this game, I know we all thought it was over. And I'm sure they, they kind of had that feeling as well. Texas offense hadn't been able to do anything all day long without the help of Oklahoma kind of setting them up. And next thing you know, the Sooners give you three possessions offensively where they do nothing. They put the defense right back on the football field and Oklahoma decides to go even more conservative defensively. They only rush three. They just sit back and allow Texas to pick them apart. And I thought it was a little too early to do that. And it allowed Texas to get a little bit of rhythm offensively for for that stretch run. But all day long, they had pressured Sam Ellinger and they had not given him the, the opportunity to make plays in the passing game. And suddenly, when Texas needs to pass the ball most, when they're in a passing desperate type situation, Oklahoma decides that they don't want to put pressure on him anymore. They want to allow him to have the opportunity to sit back and wait for his receivers to beat a defensive backfield that's been beaten by pretty much everybody they've played for multiple seasons. I just didn't really understand it. And, and I know there's this idea that you don't want to give up the big play. You don't want to allow them to score quickly. You want to make them use a lot of clock in the process of scoring. But they had literally been so limited to what they were able to accomplish offensively all day long to drastically change what you were doing was head scratching to me. And I think, again, it was a little bit too early to maybe do that. But like clockwork, once they go to the three-man rush, Texas immediately starts moving the football. Up to the seven-minute mark of the fourth quarter, Texas only managed to gain 162 yards of total offense. In their final three drives, when Oklahoma goes conservative defensively, Texas had 201 yards. I mean, it's really simple here. And to be honest with you, I thought Tom Herman failed the Longhorns a couple times in winning opportunities. I thought the touchdown they scored at the end, he should have gone for two. And if you were Oklahoma, I think you would be lying if you said you felt confident with Texas going for two at the end of regulation. I thought they should have gone for two then and potentially win the game. I thought they should have gone for two at the end of the second overtime to once again potentially win the game. I mean... Again, I think you credit this Oklahoma defense for how well they played in this matchup, but both times in those situations, they had all the momentum, and what we know about this Oklahoma defense is how much they seem to get down on themselves after they give up big plays and big moments. I would have bounced back immediately and wanted to attack that defense. And while we're talking about interesting decisions, the Lincoln-Riley conservative, aggressive seesaw down the stretch was really interesting also. I mentioned that seven-minute mark for when the tide kind of turned for the Texas Longhorns down the stretch of regulation, Oklahoma was having offensive success up to that point. And that's when, once again, we saw them go very vanilla offensively. They quit attacking via the passing game down the field. They went to the the screen passes. And for whatever reason, once again, they took their foot off the gas offensively all the way down to the final play with a third and long situation where Lincoln Riley decides to call a pass play. And I will say, I thought it was a great play call. It should have converted, and that probably ends the game, if that's the case. But it was just an odd situation to watch Oklahoma go in super conservative for the final seven minutes. And then in the one situation where being conservative really puts Texas in a bad spot offensively, that's when they decide to go aggressive. And it was just really interesting as far as the decision-making there. 
And then you carry that to overtime as well. First overtime, Oklahoma scores a touchdown. Second overtime, Oklahoma scores a touchdown. I give Lincoln Riley a lot of credit for the fourth down attempt and the fact that he didn't settle for a field goal. And in that situation, we were back to aggressive Lincoln Riley. But then I was mind blown by the fact that they blocked the Texas field goal in the third overtime and the seesaw sways the other way and Lincoln Riley goes back to being ultra conservative. I know Gabe Burkich is one of the best kickers in the country and you have to have confidence in your kicker. And if you ultimately have to settle for a field goal to win the game, then so be it. But to essentially concede your offense having the ability to beat the Texas defense in the third overtime and win the game themselves was again shocking. I know you don't want to turn the ball over and you have an opportunity to win the game. Oklahoma had just scored in back-to-back opportunities in overtime. Even if you don't want to go aggressive with the offense in the third overtime, at least give them the chance to beat a dreadful Texas defense and win the game for you. And if you don't get there and you have to kick a field goal, then kick the field goal. But just this idea that you're going to concede your advantage and go straight to the field goal was mind-blowing to me. So again, it was just a very odd, conservative, aggressive seesaw situation with Lincoln Riley from the midway point of the fourth quarter all the way through the end. And ultimately, they get the W, and that's really important. And I want to talk about that shortly because while we understand that Texas and Oklahoma both have a lot of deficiencies and neither team is what we expected they were going to be. This was a big win for a lot of reasons, and and we'll get into that in a minute. But again, I, I think you have to credit the Oklahoma running attack. I didn't think that they were going to be able to run the football as well as they did. No Seth McGowan in this game, which meant you're adding more pressure to TJ Pledger and Marcus Major to make something happen. And both of those guys were terrific and answered in a big way. But man, this game was ugly. Both offenses had three turnovers. Oklahoma had 11 penalties for 121 yards in this game. Texas had 10 penalties for 86 yards. Both teams had special team blunders. I mean, you just had a little bit of everything. It was so wild down the stretch that I got to this point where I was literally laughing at every play like a lunatic because by that point, nothing was going to surprise me. And then the game ends and I took a deep breath, changed the channel, and I was done with Big 12 football for the day. I've got to imagine, though, Spencer Rattler is going to be a better player for what he experienced in this game, for being pulled out, having the opportunity to calm down, bouncing back in a big way, and learning a big lesson, I think, in the process. So I think this might be one of those turning a corner type moments for Spencer Rattler and what we see from him going forward. Let's talk about what this game means because I think when you start talking about winning these games and being excited about winning these types of games and how good a team is on the grand scale, I feel like people get in these arguments because they're having two different conversations. One conversation is being happy with what happened in the game and winning a game versus losing a game. And another group of people is is basically talking about how that factors into the big scale of where Oklahoma should be considered in the hierarchy of college football and whether they're considered a top five team, top 10 team, a team that has a chance to win a championship, all of that. So I think those are two different discussions that sometimes in our post-game conversations get mixed And I think it's okay to be excited about one while also being disappointed in the other. If you're an Oklahoma fan, you should be excited about winning that football game. Nobody wants to lose, and you particularly don't want to lose to your rival. And I think you can be excited about finding a way to win that game while also understanding it was a sloppy football game, it was an ugly football game, and neither one of those teams looks like a great football team. I think it's fair to be excited about a win while also understanding the season as a whole to this point has been disappointing. Both of those things can be true at the same time. 
disappointing season, but a big time win. But yeah, I think we walk away from that game essentially feeling close to the same way that we felt about both of these teams entering the game. Both teams have issues on offense. Both teams have issues on defense. Both teams have issues on special teams. And both teams through four weeks of the season have shown a tendency to hurt themselves with turnovers and penalties over and over and over. So again, be happy about the win if you're an Oklahoma fan. Be upset about the loss if you're a Texas fan. But I don't think our opinion has to change on either team regardless of which way that thing would have ended. Both teams still have a lot of issues. But I promise you, things are much worse in Austin, Texas today than they are in Norman, Oklahoma today. Now let's talk about what this win means because I think I think this is an enormous win. And not because I think it all of a sudden puts Oklahoma back at the top of the Big 12 or it puts Oklahoma back in a college playoff situation. I think it's a big win for a couple reasons. And we see this throughout college football every year, especially with some big-time programs. Remember when Texas was last good and when their decline began. Remember when Florida State was last good and when their decline began. Remember when teams like Michigan or USC, and the USC situation is certainly aided by NCAA sanctions, but I think there are similarities in all of those cases. And, And look, you can even add Florida after Urban Meyer to this mix. There are so many times in the college football world where you have a program that's going really well, things are good, they're pumping out Heisman Trophy winners or Heisman Trophy caliber players, they're winning conference championships, they're getting to the college football playoff or even winning national championships. There becomes a situation where it can be really easy for the young players on teams like that to just think this is the way it is, this is the way it's always going to be. And because we have this logo on the side of our helmet, we're just going to show up every week and annihilate people. And that's not the way football works. But in a lot of these cases, it's a situation where you have big time recruits that come in following sustained success and you lose a bunch of experience on a football team and you have a very young team that's inexperienced and they lose a game and then they lose another game. And what seems to happen in these situations is confidence goes down the toilet Guys become upset with their playing time or whatever situation they're currently in. And once that that snowball of negative momentum starts to roll down a hill and starts becoming larger and larger as it rolls, that's a really tough thing to stop. Once again, look at Texas. Sustained success, big-time recruiting classes. They had a season with a bunch of turnover following a national championship appearance. And on a team full of young players, they lost some games, confidence went down the tubes, and it snowballed into Texas being down for a decade. Florida State wins a national championship, what, six years ago? Five or six years ago. Heisman winning quarterback. Jameis Winston leaves. They have a, a lot of turnover on that team. They bring back a young, talented, but inexperienced team. That team faces some adversity. You have a few injuries. You have some suspensions. Next thing you know, there are four or five losses on the season. For a team that's that's predicted to be potentially a top 10 team, sometimes I think the white flag gets waved and, and guys quit showing up every day, and it just turns into this downhill slide that you can't stop. Florida after Tim Tebow, again, had really talented teams for a good stretch. And then you have this team that wins a national championship, and you have a lot of turnover, a lot of, lot of experience that goes to the next level. And the next year, it's not like they weren't talented. They still had a bunch of talented young players, but they were inexperienced. And what happens? You lose a bunch of games, and that negative culture starts to grow. And Florida's just now getting back to the point they're dangerous again. There are so many situations in college football that you can look at 
there is an amount of sustained success, and it only takes one season where you have a bunch of players on both sides of the football graduating or leaving for the NFL, and while you're still really talented across the board, you have a lot of inexperience. And when that inexperience turns into losing some football games, that situation can become ugly really fast. So while I think, again, we can all evaluate Oklahoma as not a very good team right now, that win is huge in terms of stopping that downhill slide. And look, I think they have to still be aware of the fact that that can happen again. But what does the rest of this season look like for these guys if you're one and three and you've lost your biggest rivalry game of the season and it's a dangerous situation in college football when you have a lot of inexperience and you start losing games because once that downhill slide begins, it's incredibly difficult to stop. And in a lot of cases, even at traditional powers, you don't know when you're going to be able to get the momentum going back in the right direction. So again, I think that was a huge win for Oklahoma, if for no other reason than stopping the negative momentum that they currently had with back-to-back losses and a group of young guys that had to feel like in the midst of adversity, they weren't coming out on top. So that win, I think, does wonders for what this team is from a mentality standpoint. All right, let's talk about college football and the weekend. I watched several games over the weekend, and I just had some thoughts on a few of the on a few of the elite teams in college football. Georgia-Tennessee was a fun game to watch. Georgia defensively is absolutely loaded on, on all three levels, defensive line, linebacker, secondary. They have dudes everywhere. They probably have the best corner tandem in college football with Eric Stokes Jr. and Tyson Campbell. Their defensive line, and I'll talk about this with Clemson a little bit too, their defensive line is just loaded with so many guys that they just come at you in waves. That Georgia defense is scary good. The offense is really interesting because a year they only return one starter, and that was the center. And Oklahoma fans know this. You have a great offensive line. You lose four of the five to the NFL, and your center's the only one back. There are going to be growing pains, and I think that's the situation with Georgia. There are some growing pains on the offensive line. The expectation was they were going to have Jamie Newman, the transfer quarterback, mobile guy, really good. I thought he was going to be perfect for that offense. He opts out. The USC transfer JT Daniels apparently has just had his issues, and I'm I'm very underwhelmed with their quarterback situation right now. So I think they have weapons offensively. I think they're dangerous offensively. How good the line is is a question mark. And again, I think the, the quarterback's just underwhelming at this point. And they've got a massive matchup with Alabama on Saturday night that I can't wait to watch. And that's another interesting game that we saw on Saturday night, Alabama Ole Miss. Bama offensively is scary once again. You lose Jerry Judy, you lose Henry Ruggs. They still have an incredible amount of talent and speed at the receiver position with Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell and John Mechie. I mean, I think that group is is just as good as they were a season ago. And you lost two first-rounders. Mac Jones certainly isn't Tua, and he certainly doesn't have the playmaking ability that Tua had. He reminds me a lot of A.J. McCarron, maybe just a better version of A.J. McCarron. But I think he's he's pretty good, and he's playing good football for what they need. And then the run game, you know, behind what what's probably the best offensive line in college football, Najee Harris is just a beast. And he kind of feels like, if you look at all of Alabama's running backs over the last 10 years and all these guys that have been high draft picks and all these guys that are currently carrying the ball at the next level, Najee Harris just kind of feels like a combination of all those dudes, right? Like, you had power with Derrick Henry and Bo Scarborough. You had speed with Kenyon Drake. You had vision with guys like Damian Harris and Mark Ingram. And Najee Harris just kind of feels like he has a little bit of all of those guys in his game, but he's he's fantastic. Alabama's 
really exceptional offensively. And, and the battle between Alabama and those receivers and the Georgia defensive backs and the Alabama O-line versus the Georgia D-line is going to be awesome to watch. And on the other side of it, you know, Alabama, I think, is also loaded on defense. And we saw that two weeks ago against A&M. They played really well. They were suffocating at times. And it's like that Alabama defense on Saturday night decided to take this Saturday off. They're considerably better than the performance we saw against Ole Miss. And I don't want to take anything away from Matt Corral, who is a baller, and Lane Kiffin's offense, because they certainly deserve all the credit for what they were able to accomplish on Saturday night, scoring points on that Bama defense. If you have watched Alabama's defense at any point this season, and you watched what we saw on Saturday night, it was clear they started the game flat, they started the game without energy, and they never seemed to find it. Defensive line, not firing on the snap. It's like those guys were just stuck in their stances and very slow to engage, which is usually the complete opposite, and it was certainly the complete opposite a week ago. They were dominant in that department. Flying to the football, how many times two weeks ago did you see six or seven Alabama players around a ball carrier? Just everybody's motor at a high level flying to the football. And again, Saturday night, from the opening snap until the the final whistle, that wasn't the case. Guys weren't flying to the football. I legit thought at one point the Alabama defense pulled a Varsity Blues and they went to the strip club. They went to the landing strip, partied all night. And that scene from Varsity Blues where they walk out of the landing strip and the sun has come up and they're like, what time is it? We've got to play football today. And then they get their asses kicked. That was what I saw with the Alabama defense. It was like they had been out all night, they were all hungover, and nobody had the energy on all three levels to make a play. It was so bizarre, and I guarantee you it is going to be a rough week for that Alabama defense because there's no way Nick Saban, there's no way Nick Saban is going to give that group a pass this week. If you're playing tough and you just get beat, that happens sometimes. But once again, when you just see how lethargic and slow they were all night long in all three levels of the defense, Nick Saban's going to put them through hell this week. And finally, let's get to Clemson-Miami. With De'Eric King, Miami is better offensively than they've been in probably 20 years. Going back to Ken Dorsey and all of those NFL running backs, Clinton Portis, Willis McGahee, Frank Gore, the receivers they had back in, in that era with Andre Johnson and Reggie Wayne, Santana Moss, the tight ends with Kellen Winslow and Jeremy Shockey. Those Miami teams were explosive offensively, and we really haven't seen that from a Miami offense in a long time. And finally, Derek King shows up, and this Miami offense, once again, is explosive and fun to watch. It kind of feels like Clemson has been so bored playing their SEC schedule for the last five years that every single week... The country is asking, what's wrong with Clemson? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with Clemson. They're bored. They know they're better than their opponents, and nobody ever talks about an ACC opponent giving them any trouble at all or giving them a hard time. So now you have a top-10 Miami team with a dangerous quarterback getting a lot of hype in a primetime ABC matchup, and you saw a hungry Clemson team wanting to shut that down. It took me all of three snaps to tweet... The Clemson defense is suffocating. This will be a bloodbath. And luckily for Miami, the Clemson offense just gave away opportunities. But I mentioned this with the Georgia defense. When you look at Clemson's ability to play four guys on the defensive line that are completely dominant, pull those guys out and put four brand new guys in, and they're completely dominant as well, that is so scary with what you can do defensively. And both Georgia and Alabama are... 
both Georgia and Clemson showed that on Saturday. Just waves of defensive linemen that are all completely dominant. But Saturday was a lot of fun, and I'm excited for another weekend of college football ahead. Although at this point, we basically don't even have Big 12 football this weekend. I think Kansas-West Virginia is the only game that's being played. Baylor has COVID issues that were reported last week. And now Oklahoma State's matchup with Baylor this Saturday has been postponed to December 12th. So the Cowboys are sitting on the sideline for another week, back-to-back buys for Oklahoma State, which I imagine also means Spencer Sanders, without question, is back as the starting quarterback the next time we see Oklahoma State take the field. In the NFL, the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Giants, this was a lot like Oklahoma-Texas entering the ballgame. Nobody should have had expectations that either of these teams were going to play good football. Cowboys entered this game with the worst defense in the NFL. The Giants entered this game with the worst offense in the NFL. It took the Giants all of a quarter plus to set a season high in points scored. Giants scored 16 points in week one, 13 points in week two, nine points in week three, and nine points in week four. And they had a season high 17 points two minutes into the second quarter. The Dallas defense is garbage. Hot, hot garbage. They're the worst defense in the NFL. And I really thought watching this game between the Dallas defense and the Giants offense, we were just going to finally declare one of those two units as the worst unit in the NFL because clearly the Giants have the worst offense. Clearly the Cowboys have the worst defense. And one of those two is the worst unit in the NFL. CeeDee Lamb is outstanding once again. The catch he made where he took the shot to the head and held on to the football is just unbelievable. When you look at his entire skill set, the ability to run routes, the ability to catch the football, the ability to make plays with the ball in his hand, how good he is as a blocking receiver. I think CeeDee Lamb right now is the best receiver on the team with the best receiving core in the NFL. From one to four, Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, CeeDee Lamb, and Cedric Wilson, I think the Dallas Cowboys have the best receiving core in the NFL. And I think right now, it's fair to say CeeDee Lamb's the best of that group. Unfortunately for the Cowboys, Dak Prescott goes down. That injury was brutal, and I saw the injury immediately, and I was just sick to my stomach. If you saw the way his ankle turned, then you knew out of the gate that's a season-ending injury and pretty significant. And it sucks for a guy that had so much on the line, a guy that was set to get a giant contract next offseason, and a guy that's also dealt with a lot of tragedy and adversity in his personal life. It just sucks to see it for a guy that's as classy and professional as Dak Prescott has been since day one in the NFL. And really, it was it was tough for me, as even as a Cowboy fan, to just watch the rest of that game and, and follow along without just kind of being disappointed. My overall excitement of watching the game certainly went down. But Andy Dalton leads the charge late, and I had zero confidence they were going to get it done on the final drive of the game. Michael Gallup with a couple incredible catches, and the Dallas Cowboys stumble their way into a victory over the New York Giants. But... Those are two of the worst five teams probably in the NFL. They're just bad. Dallas defense is atrocious. I said in game one of this season that they are they have a big problem on the interior defensive line. Tristan Hill tears his ACL. That problem has just become even worse. They've got to find help somewhere for the interior of the defensive line. Secondary, still a problem. It was great to see Steven Parker, former Sooner, get an opportunity back there. But the secondary is still a problem. Defense is just bad. Again, worse than the NFL. Not good at all. Offense, again, you have all these playmakers. You have all these issues on the offensive line. Both tackles now, Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins, out for the season. Joe Looney goes on to IR. Travis Frederick had retired in the offseason. 
I mean, this is a patchwork group that, for the most part, and I know they were playing the Giants, for the most part, did okay. I mean, again, what what was your expectation of them going into this game? I, I can't imagine that it was very high. But that's an issue for the Cowboys. Andy Dalton is going to have to speed up his internal clock because he looked like he was prepared to have all day long to throw passes in that game and, and wasn't operating with a lot of urgency. And again, when you just look at what's in front of him on the offensive line, you have to know they're probably losing that battle 90% of the time. But the Cowboys are bad. And and I've got to mention this because it's mind-blowing how, once again, you can identify these problems watching the Cowboys play every single week and it never gets fixed. Special teams. What are they doing on special teams? There are literally two or three massive mistakes on special teams every single week. I, for the life of me, can't understand why that continues to happen, why you have multiple mistakes on special teams every single week. It's it's disgusting. But look, before this game, the season was already headed down the toilet. They're bad defensively. They can't figure out who they are offensively. The offensive line is patchwork. And now you take Dak Prescott out of the equation. The expectation just becomes don't get blown out every week. Before we wrap up, I got to mention the Lakers win the NBA championship last night. Terrific performance for the Lakers in a big spot. They answered in a big way. LeBron James and Anthony Davis have to be in the conversation for the greatest one-two punch on an NBA championship team in history. What those guys did in that series collectively, holy cow, they were really good. LeBron is your finals MVP. I think after the dust settles, that's the right move. I would have told you after the Lakers' third win in this series that Anthony Davis was that guy. But man, those two guys together and the way they play and how dominant as an individual each of those guys can be in their spots, they go down as one of the great tandems all time. And I got to give a shout out to my guy Trey on Twitter. He knows I'm not a Laker fan. I root against the Lakers in nearly every matchup, if not every matchup. He calls me a hater. I'm willing to give the Lakers the respect they deserve when they win. So Trey, congratulations. Lakers win the title. Well-deserved. I hope somewhere you're having your own championship parade and popping bottles of champagne. UFC on Saturday night at Fight Island, we saw one of the craziest knockouts in UFC history. And I actually turned this fight on at the beginning of the second round. And I think the knockout happened a minute or two into the second round. But the Oklahoma game had ended and I was getting my television set up on the UFC fight and the other afternoon games I wanted to watch. And I had just, like I said, just turned on that UFC fight at the beginning of the second round and sat down and I was literally watching it when when the kick to the face happened and I jumped out of my seat and yelled, holy shit, when I saw that KO, which I don't even know how to compare it to anything else I've ever seen. And so many times I feel like we're all prisoners of the moment in terms of ranking something as the best when we see it happen. So I'm, I always pump the brakes on that a little bit, and I probably need to sit down and think about it for a few minutes at some point, but I'm not going to call it the best knockout I've ever seen, but it's absolutely on the short list of the greatest knockouts I've ever seen in UFC history. I just remembered I hadn't even addressed the Jimmy Butler-LeBron James matchup in Game 5 to this point. So going back to the NBA for just a minute, how cool was it to watch LeBron James and Jimmy Butler down the stretch of Game 5 go back and forth and go go at each other and trade buckets? That was one of the all-time great stretches in finals history as far as I'm concerned with a championship on the line to watch the best player on each team put everything on their shoulders and try and win a decisive game with the other guy trying to stop it. It was it was incredible. 
And LeBron James caught a lot of flack at the end of the game for making the pass to Danny Green, which was absolutely the right call. It's so funny to me. I'm a Jordan guy, always will be. I don't know that there's anything LeBron James is going to be able to do to change my mind that Jordan is the greatest player of all time. That said, it's so funny to me when LeBron James is is having the run that he had in Game 5 and just playing lights out to make the right move, which was the pass to Danny Green, and get criticized by the Jordan lovers for passing to an open guy in a critical moment when we all remember John Paxson hitting the shot against the Suns. We remember Steve Kerr hitting the shot against the Jazz. It's not always the superstar that hits the game winner. If you have a knockdown shooter that's wide open, you got to give those guys those shots, and that's why they're there. So again, LeBron James passing the ball at the end of that game was the right move, and I was hoping that Game 6 was going to be more reflective of what we saw in Game 5. And again, just credit the Lakers for being completely dominant and not allowing the Heat to play the type of game they wanted to play. Wrap things up with this. We had Major League Baseball. Finally, the ALCS and LCS are getting underway. I, I, I really like both matchups. I think both matchups are going to be a ton of fun to watch. But how great was the Brasso home run off Aroldis Chapman this weekend to end the Yankees season? When you know the history, when you know that these guys have beef, Chapman is kind of viewed as the most dominant closer in baseball. Brasso is a guy that I would imagine most baseball people aren't even familiar with. And watching that specific battle with Brasso staying alive and fouling pitches off, the final foul ball when he had timed the fastball, I literally said out loud, I think he's got it. And next thing you know, Chapman goes heat. And Brasso pulls the trigger and just hits an iconic home run. That was so cool to see. And the Rays are a pretty terrific story. They have an incredible rotation with Blake Snell, Charlie Morton, Tyler Glass now. But I'm sure most baseball fans don't really know the majority of that lineup. And for them to continue to come up big in big spots, and it seems like it's a different guy every game, Randy Rosarina, the rookie, is a tremendous story, and, and he's kind of the guy that is the face right now of, of that lineup. But they're a great story, great Cinderella, fun to watch. And I look forward to a great ALCS. And then when you look at the bats and the Dodgers lineup and the Braves lineup and what the NLCS should be, I think that's going to be a great series. Look, I expect the Dodgers to win. I expect the Dodgers to win the World Series. They should win the World Series. They're the best team remaining. But Braves-Dodgers, going to be a lot of fun to watch. All right, that is it for this episode of the Colby Daniels Podcast. Once again, I appreciate you guys for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, review the podcast, share the podcast with your friends. Big thank you for helping me out with that. You can follow me on Twitter at Colby underscore Daniels, Instagram Colby.Daniels. Don't hesitate to comment or question or whatever interaction you want to have with me via those social media platforms. All right, guys, it was a fun weekend. Look forward to another fun week of sports. Everybody have a great week, and I will talk to you next time. Podcast is over.